Good evening, good evening. I'm glad to see you again. Um, I was wondering, for those of us who were here last night, so we talked about how God is visiting us, right? We talked about the Annunciation and how God is sending messengers. Just by a show of hands, did anybody notice in a particular way how God was speaking to you today that you were noticing something? Oh, amen, y'all, there you go, right? So, because uh, somebody sent me a very long tweet on Twitter today about a dream they had last night, and I'm like, oh, girl, you're throwing it down. So, I mean, I think that God's visiting us. I know I went to um, my friend, Sister Mary Paul, and I, I wanted to see, I love, I love Advent, I love Christmas season, I love the Nutcracker, can I just say that? And um, Disney just released an interesting take upon it. But I was just noticing that even in a Disney movie, right, God can speak to us. And so I was just paying attention throughout the movie of just different movements of my own heart of like what God is saying, especially in this Advent season, because he's speaking something to us like we talked about last night. Um, So what we're going to do, just with some logistics, if you weren't here last night, I have a PowerPoint for you this evening, and I'm going to read all the quotes on the PowerPoint. So if you can't read them, I will read them to you. I do have a lot of beautiful art, especially this evening as well. So I want to invite you, if you can't see it, I would love to invite you just to move to where you can, because I think it's going to be really helpful this evening in kind of illustrating our point when we talk about mercy and forgiveness and healing and restoration and what God is doing in your life at this very moment as you sit here this evening. Okay. So like we did last night, what we're going to do is we're going to just start with some moments of silence. And I just want to invite you, however you find yourself, that's okay, this evening, whether you had the best day ever or whether you said to yourself, I probably should have stayed in bed a little longer, that's okay. Wherever you find yourself, that's okay. So I'm just going to invite you just in a few moments of silence just to, once again, bring to the Lord the one thing you want to offer him this evening. And it can be the same thing you offered last night. It can be something new. Uh, I don't know what that is, but I just want to invite us all to to just become very present here as we're present in front of the Lord, uh, body, blood, soul, and divinity, that we can just settle in and just to be present to him, speak to him for a few moments in our heart, and then we will begin. So here we go. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you this evening as your children in the stillness of this evening on this day that you have ordained for all eternity. And we thank you. We thank you for how ardently you love us, how you are always drawing near to us, and how you delight for us to rest upon your heart. Lord, we pray for a healing of our hearts where we do not trust you where we perhaps hold you in suspicion. I just ask, Lord Jesus, in a very specific way tonight, that you as the tender lover of our souls, you who are the tender Savior, who are strong and mighty in the ways that you heal, I pray that you would work a profound healing in the depths of our hearts tonight. We ask you, Holy Spirit, as the spirit of of comfort, our comforter, that you would come, our advocate, that you would advocate upon our behalf this evening that you would make crooked ways straight in our hearts and souls and fill us with hope. And once again, we gather all of our prayers, all the intentions of our hearts, all that is known and unknown to us, and we offer it all to our beautiful mother as we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. 
The Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Victory, pray for us in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So I was telling you last night that I have a lot of nun stories because I wear this out in public. And so I, I told you that I spent a lot of time in airports. Have you ever gone to the airport and just watched people? Have you ever just like, or go to the mall? Like at Christmas time, it's very interesting to go to the mall and just watch people. I'm at the stage now where I watch people watch people. That's like a totally like different level of watching people. It's very interesting, you know. And so I noticed that when I step out in public, people are always watching me, especially around Halloween. Can I just say that? Okay, so... <laughs> Um, I, this was a great story. So a couple years ago, I was in Tallahassee, Florida around Halloween and I, I don't, you know, I wasn't paying attention, but I was in Walmart just grocery shopping because that's all the nun was doing. I had a list and everything, but I happened to be standing near the Halloween candy. And so I was standing there kind of looking at my list and I had this experience where I kind of spoke about it last night, but have you ever had that experience where you can feel somebody staring at you? Like they're staring at you. And so I could feel this. There was a man in my line of sight and he was just no holds barred, just like, and um, I looked up to him, it was like totally awkward. I looked up at him, I'm like, hi, <laughs> like, hello. And he marched over to me and he said, that's a very detailed Halloween costume there. <laughs> and I said, oh, I, you know what? I said, I'm, I'm actually not dressed up. I said, I'm a real nun. And he was like, oh, he was so disappointed. And like, oh. He was like looking for this outfit on aisle seven. Okay, so it's custom made, he can't have it, but... <laughs> But people are always watching us, you know, and in society today, people are watching us as Christians. I guarantee you, you profess to be Christian, people are watching you. And they want to see, is your life any different than anybody else's? Because a long time, you know what, my life was not. If people want to look at us, they want to see something different, and they should, my dear friends, they should. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about tonight. What, it, what is it that impedes many times our conversion? What, what impedes our areas of life, right? So can I just do a little recap of what we talked about last night? So we talked about Advent, right, from the Latin word Adventus, which means a coming, an approach, an arrival. We talked about what it means to be human. We talked about how in the catechism it talks about that we're made in the image and likeness of God, that we are a union of soul and body, spirit and matter, that we have, are capable of knowledge of self-possession and freedom, and that we're made for communion and relationships. We also talked about in Genesis, after Adam and Eve sinned, that the first question that God asks them, as a loving father, he says to them, where are you? Did you think about that at all today? Gosh, I love that question. It's such a great question. And he just comes in his gentleness and he says, where are you? Where are you? Right? Last night we talked about trust, um, being, meaning, meaning reliance, that when we trust somebody that we're relying upon them, we're relying that they're going to fulfill their promises, that they are a person of integrity. So it's really an act of, like, like the picture of Jesus resting on the heart of Mary that we saw that the beautiful um, artist Bouguereau painted of Jesus just fully resting on our Mary's heart and fully trusting her. Ever been in the car with somebody who's a scary driver and you're so tired but you will not fall asleep because <laughs> you don't trust their driving and you're, you're so tired and your like head hits the window and stuff but they're such a scary driver you do not want to fall asleep for a second. Those are like areas where we don't trust people. And then there's other people in your, in, your, in your life, you'd get in the car and you'd fall asleep and they could drive six hours. You're like, I don't really care. I'm with them. I trust them, you know? It's funny, the small things that really make or break us. So when God asks us to trust him, he's asking us really in a disposition to lean upon him, to completely rely upon him. And our question in our shattered, fragmented little selves, is God trustworthy? Is he trustworthy or not? And that is the perpetual lie that we talked about, how Satan always goes right after that broken part of our soul, and he says, God is not to be trusted. He does not love you. He's not a good father. So it's that continual battle, right? And so God continually reveals himself 
of who he is, especially at Advent, he comes as a child, right, as a beautiful child, a vulnerable child, to tell us of who he is, to shatter, oh, thank God, he shatters our images of who he is. I just love it. Because you know what? It's said that our ideas of God are not too big, they're far too small. We have such a narrow vision of who Christ is, and we know that very well because when we read the scriptures, we see the disciples had the same thing. And they lived with him for three years. They, they lived with, I'll, I'll pick that up in a second. Okay, hold on a second. All right, wait, okay. So we talked about intimacy, being at home with another, right? I read that beautiful quote by uh, Father Hennebush, which I'm actually going to read to you again because it's very important. When he talks about intimacy being, meaning being at home with somebody, and that when we're at home, that's when we, uh, when we trust, when we love, okay? So here's what he says, and I'll read this to you again. And this is his, uh, Father Hennebush, a book called Friendship in the Lord, outstanding book. He says this. He says, the need to be known is the need for intimacy. Intimacy means being fully at home with someone. Home is not a place. It is where I am fully known and loved and received just as I am. It is where I am free to be completely myself without putting on an act to win another's approval. Only in the presence of my family and my true friends am I at home because only trusted love can give such intimacy. Only trusted love can give such intimacy. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you just want to go home? (laughs) Like as a little kid, you want to just take your ball and go home. Because life can be hard, right? It can just be hard. It can be lonely. We can feel, even in our own most intimate relationships, we can feel abandoned and unloved. And it's the heart of who God is, is that his heart is our home. If you've ever seen the musical Les Miserables, There's such a beautiful part at the very end where Jean Valjean sings this beautiful, I mean, his life, you talk about mercy and forgiveness. His life has been completely restored by mercy and forgiveness. From who? A bishop. Love it. What a great story. And at the end, you know, his daughter that he's adopted falls in love with the young man, and the man is very sick, and Jean Valjean needs to get him out from behind the the barricade that they're behind. And he realizes that this mission will probably cost him his life. And he's willing to give it. And he sings this incredible, incredibly beautiful song and he's singing it to God it's a prayer and part of it says you know God on high hear my prayer in my need you have always been there if I die let me die but let him live bring him home bring him home and I thought to myself the first time I saw that musical I thought to myself that that song sounds familiar and not because I'd seen it before but because that's the song of Christ on the cross that there he is singing to the Father, if I die, let me die, but let them live, bring them home. The ache that we have for home, the nostalgia we have for home is really not memories of childhood Christmases, as beautiful as they are. It's, a, it's an ache for heaven, because that's what we're made for. So when we talk about intimacy, we're talking about being at home, and that's what God is calling us to. We also spoke about the vulnerability and the humility of Christ as he comes as a child, that he's teaching us how to be human teaching us how to be human. Um, Mother Mary Frances, I gave you that quote yesterday where she talks about the glory of the Christ the King, right? the splendor of Christ the King. And then Advent comes and she's like, we have to go through this very door, low door, right? this lintel that we have to enter into. And we hear in the Gospels of Jesus talking about becoming like a child, that we have to become little. Not childish, but childlike. And what do children do very easily if before they've been broken, before they've had trauma, is children trust very easily, don't they? It's, it's almost scary to us adults. We're like, ooh, stranger danger. What are you doing? You know, we're teaching kids because people are broken. 
But I can't tell you how many times I've gone to a Catholic school, to an elementary school, to talk to the kids. The kids have never seen me, ever. And they will never, one of them will take mine and say, Sister, come look at my art. Come here, come here, come here. I want to show you something, you know. Oh, come look at my lunch. Do you want my peanut butter sandwich? I'm like, no, honey, you keep it. That's okay. Like, I don't, you know, they're just so trusting. And that's such a beautiful thing. And don't we love that? There's something about children that we absolutely, there's so many things about them that we absolutely love. And that's what Christ is calling us to is this trust in him because he knows that when our lives are reliant upon him that they order, they're ordered. I want to give you a different quote by one, another wonderful woman in the church named Carol Hauslander. And this book is absolutely just rocking my world right now and it's called The Read of God. And she says this, and this, this is my offering for you this evening. She says this. She says, it is God's will that Christ should be born in every human being's life, and not as a rule through extraordinary things, but through the ordinary daily life and the human love that people give to one another. Our Lady said yes. She said yes for us all. Our Lady said yes for the human race, and each one of us must echo that yes in our own life. That sometimes in life we're waiting for these extraordinary moments and if God asked me this, I, w- I would do this and if God asked me this, I would do this. But you know what? Love and faith and re- trust and reliance and holiness, that's born out of the small things. In the early October, I had a very profound experience of going to Poland. I'd never been to Poland before. And one of the places that I'm still unpacking it in my own heart, one of the places that we visited was Auschwitz. And it wrecked me, wrecked me to the core. Just to, to be there at Auschwitz to see what the Jews and what people suffered and just the gross inhumanity inflicted upon them. It was overwhelming for me. I mean, I found myself fighting back tears. I just was speechless at times. And it was very beautiful. You know, I was in a pilgrimage with some other people, and our tour guide, I don't know if he was religious or not, but he stopped us along the path where um, St. Maximilian Kolbe gave his life. And he told us a story, and we had heard the story as Catholics. We heard the story many times of how Maximilian Kolbe, you know, as this uh, man was called out to be, to, you know, to be put into starvation bunker. It's a longer story, and maybe I'll tell it tomorrow night. But Maximilian Kolbe stood up, and he said to me, he said in front of everybody, I'm a Catholic priest. I'm a Polish priest. This man has a wife and children. I will take his place. And our tour guide said that for a moment, everybody that day was completely speechless. Even the German guards. Because an act of, and if, you, if you've ever been to Auschwitz, you know just the harsh conditions anyway. Anybody to do that was just, you're out of your mind. And he said, there, and in history, there had never been an act like that before. And then the German guard came to, and for whatever reason that day, he accepted the sacrifice. And Maximilian Kolbe took this man's place. What happened after that was something so beautiful. And actually, that one yes of Maximilian Kolbe didn't, didn't start that one day in the summertime, in the hot summertime in Poland. His act of love for God had started many, 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 many moments before. And it was the daily life, the daily life, the daily life. Did you know that the man he switched places with lived 53 years after that day? He spent, I love this, he spent the rest of his life preaching the mercy of God. One of the last talks he gave was in Houston, Texas at 92 years old. And he said, I will never tire of preaching this story, preaching this love of Maximilian Kolbe who gave his life for me. And that man died at 93 years old, saved by a complete act of love. A yes. A yes that bears life, and that's what love does. Love bears life, and that's what we're ultimately looking for. We talked yesterday, we talked about how the human person, right, desires happiness. And St. Augustine in his Confessions, a very famous book, 
book 10 of his confessions, he says, absolutely all of us want to be happy. We talked about that yesterday. There's not one person who doesn't want to be happy. Even people that are living in serious sin desire to be happy. And in whatever way we think, and that's even in our sin, because Satan knows very well we are, most of us are far too intelligent to choose something outright that is evil. But we will often choose things under the pretense of good. We will choose them. We will buy into lies. We will choose what appears to be good. And we will consume that fruit every single time unless we understand what it means to be truly happy. And we talked about yesterday the order of the human person, that we have an intellect, right? This order toward good, and the, or toward truth, and our will is ordered toward good. And our emotions, the word emote means to move. Our emotions and our passions are to power us to choose what is good, true, and beautiful. And you see that most excellently in Adam and Eve before the fall. You see it most excellently in a woman named Mary, who had no impediments, no impediments in her life to choose love, to choose truth, to choose beauty, to choose goodness. You talk about the fruits of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, goodness, faithfulness, modesty, chastity. Don't you want to be around people like that? And it's kind of funny, you know, every time, like, we have a feast of St. Joseph, either St. Joseph the worker, or the husband of Mary, you know, some people often make jokes about, you know, Joseph, poor Joseph, like, if anything went wrong in the family, everybody know who did it, right, because he's with Mary and Jesus, okay? And I just, I, I you know, people you know, we laugh about that, but I'm like, you know what, let, let's, let me just, let's think about that for a second. Imagine living in a family, imagine living in your family with people who had no issues. Nobody was unkind or manipulative or self-centered or selfish, people that were forgiving and merciful and beautiful and strong and courageous and virtuous. I mean, wouldn't, I I have to think as noble as Joseph was, living with Jesus and Mary in their excellence of of humanity would have drawn out of him something so incredibly beautiful, the virtue would have just been incredibly outstanding. And this is ultimately what you and I want. We talk about being happy. And so what you don't see in Augustine found, if you read the whole Confessions, you know what he finds out at the very end? That's actually what happened after he tries everything else in life. And that book, he wrote that book as a defense of his own episcopacy. That he was ordained a bishop. He was defending himself because everybody knew he had a past. And the whole story, the confession is not really a confession of his own story. It's a confession of the fidelity of God. And what he finds out at the end of the book, this whole summation of the entire book is the ultimate happiness is a life ordered toward God, praising God. Because when that happens, beauty pours forth. And so what enables us to do that, it's not just intellectual knowledge, we need it. But it's an influx, an infusion of grace. And God does that through the covenants that he makes with us. And you see that throughout Old Testament, God is always making covenants. He makes covenants with Adam and Eve, with Noah, with the Israelites, and they're always breaking covenants. And so what God does is he continues to make covenants over and over and over again until Jesus Christ comes and this, at this altar. We repeat this every single time. This is the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. And God says, I'm going to be your God. I, could you just be my people? <laughs> like, I just, that's all I want. Just be my people. Because, see, a covenant is not an exchange of goods, A covenant is actually an exchange of people. It's an eternal promise that says, I am yours and you are mine forever. Do you want to know why we get married as Catholics? Do you want to know why we get married in a church? Why we get married in a Catholic church? It's because it's actually the meeting place between God and man. That Jesus Christ is literally present in the tabernacle here, body, blood, soul, and divinity. The king of the universe is present here. The church is the meeting place of of God and man. 
The vows take place where? At the foot of the altar, the altar of sacrifice, where Jesus in par excellence says, this is my body given up for you. This is the new and everlasting covenant. This is my body given up for you. So a covenant in exchange of person is a sacrifice, it's an offering. So the vows take place right here at the foot of the altar. The priest stands here as, a, as in the person of Christ in persona Christi witnessing the vows. The, the sacrament of marriage is the only sacrament that the couple confers upon one another. The priest witnesses it. The, the groom stands here dressed in black, looking a little nervous, but he stands here dressed in black. Why is he wearing black? He's wearing black as a sign that he's going to die to himself so his bride can live. That's why he wears black. He also stands here as the priest of the house, as the head of the house, as the one who what, lays down his life for the bride. Their whole lives are about to change. The bride comes in the back of the church and she comes in wearing white because she is the church, as St. Paul says, she is without spot, without stain, without wrinkle. And she, even the symbolism of the marriage ceremony is just so incredibly beautiful. She comes from the back and she processes toward, right, toward her husband. She's accompanied by who? Her father which is a sign of how God the Father accompanies the church, that she represents the church, how Jesus, he gives his life for us to wash us, to cleanse us, to heal us. She walks down the aisle, which just symbolizes the journey of life. She walks down the aisle with her father, which how God the Father accompanies you and I, down the pathway of life and what? He entrusts us to the son. And as the father entrusts his daughter to her husband, he gives her to him. And the two stand at the foot of the altar at the sacrifice and they make vows. And a vow is a solemn promise. They make a covenant with one another. And they say what? I will love you and I will honor you and I will cherish you. In good times and in bad, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part all the days of my life. They make a promise verbally and later that night, they will consummate that promise physically. Their love is so powerful, the union between a man and a woman is so powerful, that from their love, a third person issues forth. It's an icon of the Trinity. This is why marriage is under so attack right now. It's because it's an icon of something eternal. And this, as we know, my dear friends, we know very well that the union between a man and a woman, it can be very broken at times. And sometimes people break promises, don't they? They break covenants, but God never does. And that's the thing, what he says, he's saying this to you and to me. He's like, I love you. You're my children. I love you. I've made a covenant with you. I love you in good times and in bad, for richer, for poor, for in sickness and in health. I love you when you're inconvenient and when you're convenient. I just love you and I give myself totally to you. And God gives himself to us holding nothing back. I just, I can't even believe it. You know, when I lived in Seattle, Washington, I don't know how your church is here. I hope this doesn't happen here. But our church is just north of downtown. And we had people that come into church from all walks of life. I kid you not, for, there, I don't know what was happening in the church at that time, but for about six months, about a solid six months, after every Sunday Mass, we would find the host in different pews. We would find it in hymnals. We would find host on the floor. And we would have to, we, the sisters, before we would leave every mass, we would walk up and down every single aisle to make sure somebody had not taken the host and desecrated it by throwing it on the ground. And Jesus Christ still comes to us. I just can't, I mean, I just can't believe it. He gives himself to us totally in a completely, totally unified covenant. And his desire is to heal everything within us because, see, God doesn't, we give, a, we give ourselves in pieces because we're broken, and we have areas of our life that's wounded, but God is not wounded. He's not broken. And he, when he gives, he just gives himself totally. 
And the measure to which you and I can receive his love, to receive it and to become a reservoir of love, that is the measure to which we give it out. You know, why is Our Lady so powerful? Is because she had no impediment of reception. She's a complete and total open reservoir. Her soul is transparent. She, she says that of herself. She radiates the Lord. And that's what people that we see that are holy, that is authentic holiness. It's not weird. It's ordinary people like you and I. That's one thing I love about being Catholic is like the saints, the, the, the stories of the saints are replete with people from all walks of life. I guarantee you, your part of your story is in the heart of a, a story of another saint. And not one single person is excluded by their story from becoming holy, which means becoming whole, because honestly, that's what being Catholic means. If I were to ask you, what does the word Catholic mean? You'd probably tell me it means universal. And it does, but it actually, the nuance of that means according to the whole. To the whole. Like we talked about last night of how Jesus is healing us. Like he heals us not just in parts. He heals the whole person. That's what is Christianity. We talk about Christianity is not behavior modification. I was telling the teens that on Sunday night. We're not here to make you good little girls and boys. That's not the goal. Christianity is a complete transformation unto glory. And don't we ache for that? Especially in this Advent season, as we go into the depths where we, we journey with Jesus and Mary, we ache for that. So what does that require, my dear friends? But like we talked about here, this mutual gift, it requires a surrender. Like Mary surrenders. And trust is related to surrender, and trust and surrender are related to hope. But if we're not willing to surrender, we're going to have a hard time receiving. Because to surrender, the word surrender means to yield. I'm going to yield to another. And that can be really scary sometimes, I think, you know? I think we all have people in our life where I know that I do. We have people in our life that will absolutely refuse to let you pay for anything. That you take them out to lunch and you're like, I'm taking you out to lunch and they will not let you pay. It's a funny thing, but they absolutely just will not let you pay for lunch. They will wrestle you over the bill in front of the waiter after lunch to make sure they pay. And you're like, would you just please let me give you a gift? And they're like, no, 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 I got it. And you're like, I know you, I know you can afford it, but I just want to gift you. Could you just let me do this for you? Because it's, it's, an act of vulnerability to receive something. I think we also know people in our life, I, I know that I do as well, people in my life that I, I would just love to know more deeply. They're so amazing, and I would just love to know them more. But for whatever reason, they're just not open to sharing. And you know, you try to be a good friend, you try to you know, show up, and you try to be a safe place for them to be, and you try to speak life into them. And they're wonderful and kind and courteous, and, and, but there's just a part of their heart they just absolutely will not share. And you have to respect that because people are sovereign. They're very sacred. You can't intrude upon that sacred space. But don't we all say, man, I would just wish I knew you a little bit. I just want to know you. Like, I just would love to walk with you, journey with you there. And they're like, mm, 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 And there's like, these massive walls that go up. And so in that, what happens is Christ comes into our life, right? So let me ask you this this evening. What gets in the way, my dear friends, what gets in the way of us following Christ, following this path, or committing or continuing on the journey with Christ? And what leads, in a, what leads to hardness of heart or resentment or addiction or cynicism in our life? What are those parts of our hearts where we do kind of go through the motions? Are the parts of our hearts where if we were really honest, we'd just say we're flat out not interested? Not interested. And it's very interesting, you know, when Jesus approaches the man in the Gospel of John, he approaches the man who's paralyzed by the, by the pool, the pool of Bethesda, right? Where he, the first thing is very interesting, the pedagogy of Christ is always asking questions. And the first thing he asked the paralyzed man, the man's been there for 38 years. 
very interesting question. The first thing he asks them is, do you want to be well? <laughs> the guy's like, well, 38 years, you've all been here a long time. You know, like I, you know. And, but notice the interesting thing, the guy doesn't say, yes, I do. The first thing he says is, well, whenever the water is stirred up, somebody else always beats me to it. But it's fascinating because Jesus comes into my life all the time and he says, Sister Miriam, do you want to be well? And there are parts of my heart, I guarantee you, I mean, my, it's not because I live in Texas. My motto in life is go big or go home. I'm not joking, okay? And there are parts of my life I'm like, Jesus, yes, I want to be well. And there's other parts of my life, if I'm really honest with you, he'll say, Sister Miriam, do you want to be well? Do you want to be well right here? And I'm like, can I, can I think about that and get back to it? I kind of like this little resentment that I have toward this person. I'm just going to nurse that for a little longer, okay? And I, I'll get back to you on that, you know? Just going to put that, you know? It's kind of funny. Or I'm very used to this negative part of my life. I'm very used to this time. This is how I see the world, and this is just how it's going to be, Lord. So let me get back to you on that. And luckily, oh, dear friends, he doesn't settle for that because I love how he loves us. So here we go. One of my favorite stories in the gospel is the Gospel of Luke, um, which is actually the road to Emmaus, chapter 24. And this is a very famous painting. It's probably also at your grandmother's house. And so this is a painting of the road to Emmaus where Jesus and the two disciples are, ga- are, are journeying together. This is painted by a Swiss painter named Robert Zund, who is uh, painting very famously in, the, I would say, the late 1800s. And one thing about him, even though he's more of a modern painter, he never painted architecture or buildings. He only painted idyllic landscapes. And isn't it beautiful? Obviously, a PowerPoint doesn't do it justice, but I just want to point out a couple things to you. Just like to notice the rich, like lushness of the forest and the path, even like the detail of the tree trunks that you see here at the bottom. Just such a beautiful, beautiful painting. And one of my favorite things about this painting is doesn't it look like you could jump right in behind them and continue the journey? Such a great story. And here's where you and I find ourselves all the time. Here it is. So Jesus uh, has suffered and died in the most horrendous death that people could possibly imagine. For us, you know, we read about it during Holy Week, but we don't understand the trauma that it would have inflicted upon the people who witnessed it. It was a horrendous way to die. Only slaves and rebels were crucified. It was very traumatic, very violent. And these disciples that had been with him for three years, like I talked about earlier, they had seen him raise people from the dead. They, saw, they were there when Lazarus was raised from the dead. They saw him multiply the loaves. They saw him heal the sick. They heard him say, the son of man must come and suffer and die. They heard him say that. They heard him talk about the temple. They, heard him drive out, they saw him drive out the money changers. They were there. Like, in the east, you don't go home after school. Like You live with the master. So much so, which is very beautiful, that people know who your master is by studying you. They know because that's how closely you live with the master. And they had, like you and I have our ideas of Christ, they too had their ideas of Christ. And then he is arrested. He's betrayed by one of their own, whom they thought they knew. They thought they knew Judas. He's betrayed by one of their own. He is arrested. He is tortured. He's crucified. Judas takes his own life. I mean, what you talk about trauma? And everything that they thought was going to happen has now shattered. And I can only imagine just how bereft they would have been case in point, are these two disciples as they're walking to Emmaus. They actually, Jesus tells them to stay in Jerusalem, but they're leaving. They left Jerusalem and they're going the wrong way. And they're talking about what happened with Jesus and there's such a deep, like, you know, just a deep discussion about it. It says, some translations say that they were debating with each other. It was actually a hot contest. Like, they were totally debating over what happened. And they were so turned inward that Jesus literally comes in their midst and they don't recognize him. 
Have you ever been so overcome by a problem in your life, like you're so turned in on yourself and you're just stewing about this thing and what's going to happen and I have no idea what I'm going to do, that somebody comes into your midst, sometimes you don't even recognize them or you don't even pay attention to them because you're so focused here. And that's exactly what happens. And he comes into their midst, and I don't know how that happens. I don't know if he just kind of, kind of saunters up on the trail. But it's so great because God is very funny. He comes up to them, and he's like, what are you guys talking about? And it's like crickets. <laughs> and they say to him, are you, the, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who hasn't heard about the sorts of things that have happened these last couple days? And Jesus says, oh, really? <laughs> like, what sorts of things? Like, oh, do tell. Please do tell. So what they do is it's such a great thing. They actually tell Jesus about himself from their point of view, right? So they begin to tell him about himself. Well, this is Jesus' prophet. He's mighty in word and deed. And, you know, we, he was doing these incredible things, and we thought he was going to restore the temple. And, you know, but some women, he was crucified. But some women from our group, they said they, they went to the tomb today. They didn't see him. So they're telling him the story, and I can imagine just a smile on his face as he's listening. But then they say something that every time I tell this story always pierces my heart. They say, we had hoped. We had hoped that he would have been the one. We were hoping. And I think, very honestly, that all of us in this room have had moments in our life where we, quote-unquote, had hoped that God was going to come through for us. That you prayed that your husband would find a job. That you prayed that your child would survive. That you prayed that your child would turn away from addiction. That you had prayed for your parents. You'd prayed for your friends at school. Something like that where we had felt like we had put our trust in the Lord and we said, he let me down and we had hoped. And so then what happens is we turn in on ourselves. And you'll notice how Jesus engages them and he says to them, what sorts of things are on your heart? What are they? What are they? Notice the first thing he doesn't say to them is, why are you guys going the wrong way? I told you it's dangerous. He goes with them the wrong way. He walks with them in the path, and then he engages them right where they're at. You talk about how Christ teaches us. So what he's saying to you right now, to me, what is the key to conversion? What is the key to transformation in our life? When Jesus comes into our life and he says to you and to me, he says, what, what are your what things, so to speak? What are they here what so captivates you at times that it turns you totally inward or you can't see or the parts of our hearts where we don't want to be well or the parts of our hearts where we've long forgotten about God or we say we had hoped? Like, what are they? Because like we talked about last night, Christ is always about our heart, always. And he listens. He's not making fun of them. He's listening and he's, he's journeying with them. It's, this is exactly what he's doing in your life and my life right now. No matter where we find ourselves, no matter how old or young we are, Christ is drawing near to us right now and he's journeying with us and he's saying to you, what are your what things? What are they? Because I want to encounter them right now. They tell him the whole story and then he tells them another story. <laughs> and he says to them, don't, you don't get it. You don't get it, do you? And he says, didn't you understand the Messiah had to suffer? Don't you understand that? And then he, op he tells them salvation history from his point of view. He opens their mind to the scriptures. I'm like, Lord, please open my mind to the scriptures. And he tells them the whole story of who the Messiah is. They are so engrossed in the conversation. They get to Emmaus. I mean, it's dark already. And I love it because Jesus acts like he's going to keep on walking. <laughs> so great. And they say, um, hey, can you stay with us? It's dark. Can you stay with us? And Jesus says, yes, I can. And what happens? They sit down at table, right? And this beautiful moment happens. This is a um, painting of that moment where Jesus reveals who he is in the breaking of the bread. 
And this is painted by a very famous artist, my personal favorite, named Caravaggio. And I just want to point out some things to you in this picture as well. You'll notice just, do you know how rich and red, look, notice how rich and red it is. Like there's just such a vibrance to the painting. You'll notice how deep, how big the gestures are as Jesus breaks the bread. It's the exact moment that the disciples realize who Christ is. You see the expansive gestures. I mean, I love it, even the detail of it. You see even the, the, the um, cut in the elbow of the, the cloak that the, one of the disciples is wearing. I mean, they just can't believe it. And you see how beautiful and young Christ is, how full his face is. He has better hair than I do. Can I just say that right now? Okay, just like way better. Just full. Of, everybody's y- younger. I mean, this disciple's level, but everybody's younger at the table. Apparently there was chicken there. We had no idea, but there was chicken at the uh, Rotomaeus. Here we go. In art, fruit matters. So Caravaggio has painted this incredible basket of fruit that's ripe, that's ready to eat. And you see as Jesus is reaching over the bread to break the bread, you see the blessing of it. And at that moment, at that moment, they realize that it's him. And I'm going to pick up this story tomorrow night. But I want to tell you this. We talked about last night that we're only as sick as our secrets, right? There's another wonderful saying in healing circles that says this, suffering that is not transformed is transmitted. Suffering that is not transformed is transmitted. And what that means is this. Any area of our life where we've experienced suffering that has not been allowed to be transformed by God or is not even willing to be allowed to be transformed by God in all the various ways he wishes to do that, that suffering doesn't go away. All we do is we just transmit it on to the people around us. We transmit it on to our spouses, onto our kids, onto our coworkers. We transmit it on to the Lord. Um, many times what happens is because parenting is the most important job on the face of the earth, why? Because it's from mom and dad that kids first learn about God. If you had a wonderful father, I bet I would be willing to bet it is fairly easy for you to imagine God as a loving father who is there for you, who cares for your heart, who protects you, who provides for you, who fights for you, who, who leads you, who guides you, who corrects you out of love. It's, very, it's much easier to do that because we understand, in a sense, God through the prism of our fathers. But if you had a father who was not there for you, or who was abusive, or who never said he loved you, or who never even cared, or just was emotionally absent or physically absent. If those areas of our life are not transformed by God, who so tenderly desires to reveal who he is, if those areas are not transformed by God, what happens is we just transmit them onto God, and that's how we relate to God. And we don't want to serve a God like that. And so we keep our distance from him. I mean, there's many other, there's large ways and small ways. I kind of joke sometimes, you know, when you were a kid, did your mom or dad ever say a certain phrase that you just couldn't stand? And when you said to yourself, when I grow older, I'm never going to say that. Like when I have kids, and then you get older and you have kids and you say the very thing you said to your mom and dad said, you're like, I'll become a mother. Like what's happening right now? You know, it's like funny things like that where we say, I'll never do that. But yet in our hearts, right, there's there's an amount of suffering that goes there. And so what happens is it just leaks out of us. It leaks out of us. And it leaks out of great artists like Caravaggio. Because let me tell you this, Caravaggio is a man like us. I mean, in all things but art, really. And so he grew up in a family. He had some issues with his father. He was very, very skilled as a painter at a very young age. And he quickly rose to fame, very quickly. He was also, you talk about suffering that is not transformed, is is transmitted. He had a lot of gaping wounds in his life. He was notoriously difficult to work with. He was very angry. He spent a lot of time at the bar, drank a lot, wasted a lot of money. People clamored for him to paint for them, and they would pay him a lot of money to do that. And when he did, he would often produce wonderful things like this, but it was on his own time, and it's what he wanted to do. He was notoriously difficult to work with, had a violent temper. 
what happened with Caravaggio is something that happens to many people is that one night, you talk about repeated acts of things that happen, repeated acts for good or for ill. One night, his anger and all of his brokenness came out and got the best of him, and it changed not only his life, but it changed the Western art world forever. That one evening, Caravaggio was after, you know, I don't know what he was doing, but after some work or something like that, he was at a bar, and he had a confrontation with a man, and art historians don't know exactly what happened, but something happened in that confrontation, and at that moment, Caravaggio pulled out a knife and stabbed the guy and killed him. And the penalty at that time in Rome, Italy, for murder was capital punishment, was uh, beheading. And that night, he fled Rome, and he lived the rest of his life in exile. And art historians noticed that after he committed that crime, after he, whether he intended to or not, after he committed that crime, something happened within him and all the interior anguish and the fear began to leak out of him and his paintings. His paintings were never the same. After he went into exile and before he died, and he died a very tragic death, he was never reconciled. He never was able to understand kind of what happened with himself or be able to reconcile within himself. He painted another painting, even in exile. He was still painted in exile. And the first painting that he painted was actually another version of this same scene. But you'll notice, instead of looking like this, this was painted at the height of his career. The very first painting after he committed this crime was this scene, but it looks like this. Right? You see the difference? Look at, just notice the difference in just the colors. Look how everybody's aged. Look how old everybody is. There's no reds. There's nothing vibrant. I mean, just look at the face of Christ. I mean, he looks like he's aged about 30 years. And his face is pinched, it's dark. The whole painting is shrouded in darkness. Everybody's much older. The table is no, it's not rich with fruit and chicken. It's just very barren. It's got one piece of bread, which is very aptly put. It's broken right down the middle. And you see a deep, like a forlornment in this heart. And I thought when I saw this, I said, that's so exactly what happens to you and I. That yes, you know what, in scenes like this in our life, that you see shadows here, but this is life fully alive. This is life allowing Christ to come and speak to our what things and transform us to reveal himself in the midst of where we think he's not. He comes to show us who he is. But for a lot of us, we have so many unuttered things in our life that life isn't lived here, it's lived here. It's lived in the darkness, it's lived in the pinching, it's lived in the suffering, right? And the suffering that is not allowed to be transformed, but what we do is we continue to hold it. And one of the deepest areas that we do that, and this is the quote that I was talking about, suffering that is not transformed is transmitted, and it comes in these areas of our wounds, right? So let me just talk about this, and we're going to go from here. How do wounds happen? And this is from a really wonderful therapist. I'm going to give you some more um, resources tomorrow night. We talk about resurrection and hope. But this is co- book, comes from a book called Be Healed. So here's what happens in our life, in your life and my life. So something happens in our life and we receive a wound. So maybe that's something that somebody said to us or something about us, something that happened in life. And many times what happens is we feel powerless, we feel rejected. And so what we do out of these wounds, because they're so painful, is that we develop beliefs about ourselves. Maybe lies about, about us. We say to ourselves, well, I have to be in control now at all times or nobody loves me. We develop judgments about the people that hurt us. Oh, they'll never change. They're awful people, okay? And then what happens from that is that we make vows, and we say not vows here, the vows that come out of holiness and freedom and goodness and love, but vows that come out of fear, and we say to ourselves, this wound happens, and we develop these lies and beliefs, and then we say to ourselves interiorly many times, even subconsciously, I will never be vulnerable. I will never trust. I will never be seen. I will never be exposed. I will never be so gullible. Like the things in our hearts that we hear in these, these areas of pain. And so what happens is, is we begin to self-protect and we build up walls and we think the walls defend us, 
They think, we think they protect us from further pain. But what they do is they actually insulate us from authentic love. And it creates barriers in intimacy and friendships and relationships and families. You know, how many times I hear stories about all the time about families who, you know, half the family, and, you know, half the family doesn't talk to one, one half the family anymore because 20 years ago Aunt Sally said something to my kid. And we are not talking to her anymore. Our kids are not playing with her kids. And this whole civil war develops in the family because of something somebody said that was wounding. Do you see how that happens? And the wound is embarrassing. It hurts our hearts. And then we project onto the other people and we say, well, we're not going to have anything to do with those people anymore. And it's our own family. And then what God does in our life is he comes into our life and he says to you and to me, what are your what things? And for most of us, our standard answer, like everybody else, is how you doing? Good, busy, (laughs) great. And Jesus says, what are your what things? What are they? Because, my dear friends, that is the only way to transformation. It's the only way. It's the only way to transformation is through the, the Paschal mystery, which is the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ, when we allow him to encounter us. Because what he does is he actually brings us mercy. And mercy is a restoration of the covenant. It's an act of love that goes beyond justice. That he cannot wait to reconcile us. He's always going out to reconcile people. Even after the disciples betray him, what he does is he goes out to reconcile with them. He offers them what? Peace. And we say peace on earth, and especially in this season, we talk about peace. We're not talking about, as Christians, we're not talking about peace meaning a good feeling or an absence of war. The deepest meaning of peace, the word shalom, means a rightly restored relationship. It means the healing of relationships. And yes, you know what, sometimes on this earth, I know and even in my own story, relationships, for whatever reason, can't always be healed to the degree with which we would like them to be but there is nothing in our life that prevents us from offering forgiveness. And you know what the number one block to healing, to being well is in our lives? Unforgiveness. The areas of our life where we say, I I will never forgive that person. I will never. I will never do that. I will never open my heart. I don't want to be hurt because we have a misunderstanding of what forgiveness is. I know for myself, I labored under a misunderstanding for a very long time and that really ended up wounding me for a very, and I thought forgiveness was like letting you off the hook, saying like what you did didn't matter. And there are certain things that were like, oh, that's okay, you know, if somebody hurts you or whatever, that, that's fine. Does it, I mean, it doesn't hurt you that much, so you can say it's not a big deal. But there are certain things in life that are a huge deal. And I misunderstood forgiveness as be, letting them off the hook or saying that what they did didn't matter. But I had a huge lesson in forgiveness that I've been learning in a very, very powerful way for 12 years now. That forgiveness is not saying that what you did didn't matter. Actually, to forgive fully is really hard work because it actually requires you to be fully honest. And not just once, but many times. Like love, love is to will the good of the other. Forgiveness is a choice. Where I'm choosing to not say that it didn't matter, but I'm choosing an act of love that goes beyond justice. Where I'm releasing my grasp on this person or situation. I'm taking them to the foot of the cross and I'm being very, very honest about it. And it is something that I might have to go back to again and again and again. And it is a life of freedom. Many years ago, I was well into religious, I've been in religious life 20 years. Many years ago, I was in religious life, and I found myself just kind of unhappy. It was a long time ago, and I couldn't figure out why I was unhappy. And I knew in my story, I mean, I'm very honest with my story, and I'll tell you some of that tonight. I'm very honest with my story. But I knew that there were some things in my story that I had some suffering that had never been transformed. I had suffering in my life that I'd never even been spoken of to myself, much less anybody else. But I thought to myself, I'm an adult now. 
how can those things that happened to me as a child or those areas of unresolved trauma in my life, how can that have to do with anything that has to do with me now? And what I realize now is that many times if our past is not resolved, all we do is live it out in the future. That's what happens. And so this is a long journey of like kind of trying to understand, like, Lord, what's, what's happening with me? Like, what is this story? And I had a very distinct moment one day where I was reflecting on the, I believe the Gospel of Matthew. There's a parable of the unforgiving steward, right, where Peter says to Jesus, Lord, like, how often do we have to forgive people? Like, seven times, you know, 77 times? And Peter, Jesus is like, oh, Peter, <laughs> not seven times. But he's talking about 77 times, or seven times 77 times, which is an infinitude, a multitude. And then he tells a very interesting parable. He says there's a master who called in a a servant who owed him a great debt, which biblical scholars say was a lifetime of wages. Like, so I don't know what this servant was doing, but completely mismanaging money. There's no way he could pay it back. And the master called in the servant. He asked him to pay back the debt. And the servant falls on his knees and he says, no, please, please, master, please, I promise you I'll pay you back. Please give me more time. And that master knows full well that there is no way that the servant is going to pay back. He knows it. But I love the words that Jesus puts into the heart of the master. He says, moved with pity, moved with mercy, the master forgives the servant his entire debt. And that servant gets up, and he goes into the household, and he finds another servant who owes him a mere fraction of the amount, like six months' wages. And just the visual imagery is just vibrant. He says he begins to seize him and throttle him, saying, pay back what you owe, you owe me. Pay back what you owe. And that servant falls on his knees and he says verbatim, like verbatim what that other servant had just said to the master. He says, please, please give me time. I promise you I'll pay you back. Please give me time. And that servant is having none of it. And he orders him and his wife and his family to be sold, the debt to be paid, to put into prison. And the other servants in the household are horrified, horrified. And they go back to the master and they tell the master everything that happened. And that master calls back in the servant, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says to him, what are you doing? What are you doing? I forgave you. I forgave you your entire debt because you asked me to. But this servant of yours who owes you a mere fraction of the amount, him you cannot forgive. And that servant says nothing. And in that moment, I saw myself in that parable, and I was not the master who was kind and generous. I was the unforgiving servant. And I had, by the collar of the shirt, the person that had hurt me the most in my entire life. And for over 20 years in my heart, I was saying, man, you pay back what you owe me because you owe me. You owe me. And in justice, he did And he does. And to this day, I can honestly tell you, he's not sorry at all. And I, at that moment, was horrified in my own soul, and I said, I cannot go on like this any longer. And I'd have been in recovery from alcoholism for quite some time. I did not want to go back to drinking. I did not want to go back to my former way of life. And I had just a long history of trauma. I was conceived out of wedlock. My biological parents were high school students. Um, to this day, I've never met them. I, I have a distinct, just interior vision in my own soul of at one point my mother thought of aborting me, but she didn't. And I'm here today because a scared 17-year-old girl said yes to life. And I was a child in her womb. I was adopted. Um, I was in a foster home for three months, and I was adopted. And 
um, I found out that I was adopted through a conversation that I had with my mother who um, inadvertently said something that kind of set a trajectory in my life that she didn't mean to say, and we've had a lot of conversations about that. But when I found out that I was adopted, my mom told me the story, but then she said to me, you want to be careful who you tell that to because we don't want people to look at you differently. And so for me at seven years old, I thought, well, there must be something wrong with me. And that was honestly the day that I began to keep secrets. When I was 12 years old, or when I was 11 years old, I was sexually abused. I didn't tell anybody. I started drinking on my 12th birthday. When I was 13, I was raped. And and my life just shattered, shattered after that. I was very promiscuous, very, very broken, very full of self-hatred. And I had, you know, a very nice filter. If you would have asked me how you're doing, I would have said, I'm fine. I'm fine. Good, busy. I'm managing quite well. Thank you very much. And if you've ever tried to manage your life quite well, you know that doesn't work like that. And I had just a distinct moment in my life when I was 21 years old that I didn't want to live anymore. And I didn't know what to do. And I was very sick. You talk about having secrets. I was so incredibly sick. And then I heard God call me. I had this priest that came into my life that mentored me. It was absolutely wonderful. And I heard God call me. And I thought, you know what? When I become a nun, all my problems are going to go away because that's what happens in the sound of music. Okay? So that's what, that's what we do. <laughs> Which I'm sure that's what you thought. When you got married, all your problems would go away, right? So um, what happens is you end up picking up other people's baggage, and I brought all my brokenness right into religious life with me. And then I lived with a group of sisters who got to experience my, trans- my transmitted suffering onto them, right? All my own areas of not trusting, all my areas of self-protection, all my areas of selfishness, they all got to experience it because I was transmitting it onto them. And I meant well. But there was something in my heart, in my heart that needed to be healed, and it was at that moment we're a very deeper, a much deeper journey that has been ongoing for well over 10 years now in the area of forgiveness and restoration and mercy. And I can honestly tell you that my life since that moment has never been the same. Pope Benedict uh, is a beautiful essay on the, on the sacred heart of Jesus, and he says this. He says, Stoic thought, I love this quote, he says, Stoic thought regards the heart is that which holds things together and aims at self-preservation. The pierced heart of Jesus has overturned this definition. This heart is not concerned with self-preservation, but with self-surrender. It saves the world by opening itself. This heart saves by giving itself away. That the heart of Christ, as you see here, and you see this beautiful painting, and this is another famous rendition of the crucifixion by Diego Velasquez, and you'll notice it's not particularly gory, and that's not what he was going after. Art historians say it's noted for its serenity, and it's nobility, and it's a quiet painting of a king who is crucified for us, whose heart has been pierced open so you and I can go and find healing. The thing about Christ and the thing about God is that you and I, in our life, we live in chronological time. So our life unfolds in what we call chronos. So it unfolds moment after moment after moment. Right now it's like 7.57, and an hour from now it'll be 8.57, and tomorrow it'll be Wednesday. And so our lives unfold over time, and we experience life unfolding over time. And Jesus Christ comes in the Annunciation. He enters time. He enters outside of time. He enters into time, and he takes on our lives. He takes on everything in our life. But see, God, in who God is, God lives outside of time. It's what we call kairos. He, call, it, he lives in what we call the eternal now, which means it's hard for us to fathom because we're so limited to our little time on earth. It's like a time warp for real. But God lives outside of time, and so he is present to us now and every single moment of our life is present to him right now. Which means, this is so beautiful, that there's nothing in your life that's ever happened to you that is outside his ability to heal it. Even if you're sitting here today and you are 80 years old 
and you have a memory of yourself as a five-year-old over something that happened, God is present right now waiting to heal that moment. That there's no statute of limitations on what he can heal. And he desires to heal the whole person. He desires to make us whole. And that's what he reveals to us on the cross, that his heart is pierced open to teach us what it means to be human, to bring us into restoration, to renew the covenant with us so that we are living a life fully alive and vibrant. And you know what? Life is messy like the stable. We talked about last night. It's messy and it's, it's beautiful and messy and it's chaotic at times and there's all these things, but it is a glorious thing. And what keeps us on the sidelines of life, nobody likes to be on the sidelines, or maybe sometimes we do, what keeps us on the sidelines of life is many times these areas of our life are what things that have turned so far inward or are areas of life where we just do not want to forgive or we don't think we can forgive that keep us bound. And one of the best ways for us to walk in freedom is to at least begin the journey of forgiveness. So what I'm going to do this evening, um, I'm going to actually invite you if you want to come. And if you don't, you don't have to. But I'm going to invite you through a forgiveness meditation. So I just would like to invite you to put anything that you have in your hands down. Just set it down. And just for the sake of time, I'm going to lead you through an exercise, a meditation. And you might find that there are certain steps that you need to stay on. If you, you, know, you need to stay at a certain place. I want to encourage you to stay right there. All right? So if you find that there's a certain step that you're like, I just need to stay right here, go right ahead. You don't have to take any notes. You don't have to remember anything. I'm just going to gently invite you on a journey. I want to also invite you um, to not self-censor. I think sometimes in our life, maybe even tonight as I'm talking about different areas of woundedness or things like that, you're thinking of people or things. And sometimes what we do is we say, well, that wasn't even a big deal. Let's not do that. <laughs> Let's see what the Holy Spirit brings, who the Holy Spirit brings to your heart tonight. It could be somebody living. It could be somebody deceased. It could be a big trauma. It could be something very small. But let's just give the Holy Spirit free reign tonight to bring to mind whoever he would like us to forgive. Sometimes the person that we have the most difficulty forgiving is ourselves. How many of us in our life have done something many years ago that maybe we've gone to confession for or we tried to reconcile but we still hold ourselves in such contempt rather than having somebody else by the collar of the shirt. It's like we have ourselves by the collar of our own shirt and we refuse to give ourselves, to forgive ourselves. And many times what that is is it's indicative of deep, deep pain or deep shame, right, where God wants to heal us. And the other person I want to throw out there is that many of us are just angry with God. Where we have said to God, I had hoped, I put my hope in you and you've disappointed me. And we might still come to Mass every Sunday and we might still go through the motions, but there's part of our hearts that we're very angry with God and I want you to know that he's okay with that. And that you can tell him that. And he can handle your anger. And he wants to speak to you at the deep parts of your heart. So tonight, like whoever that is for you, I just want to give you just full permission, um, you know, in, in the Holy Spirit just to, just to kind of journey with that. And like I said, I'm going to go and going to kind of lead you on a journey. And uh, we will be on our way this evening. Okay, so if you want to come along, here we go. So Holy Spirit, uh, we just ask you at this very moment that for all of us, myself included, that you would bring to mind to evening the one person who needs our forgiveness? Who do we need to forgive? It could be something that happened today in our family or at school, something at work. It could be something that happened a long time ago. Like I said, it could be ourselves for something we've done or maybe we're angry at God. That's okay. So Holy Spirit, we just ask that right now you would bring to mind the one person who needs our forgiveness, who we need to forgive. 
And I just want to invite you in your heart, in your mind's eye, to place that person somewhere so you can put them far away from you, you can bring them close to you. But I just want to invite you to place that person somewhere in your heart as you see them interiorly. And just to pay attention to what you feel just looking at them. What does it feel like? And sometimes we might instantly feel anger. We might feel shame. We might feel disgust or embarrassment. We might feel nothing. That's okay. What does it feel like just to look at that person? And as you look at them, I would like to invite you to to make a full account of what happened. How did they hurt you? What is the full situation? So as you look at them, in your mind, call to mind what exactly what happened. What's the story? What is that story of pain? And whatever emotions come to your heart, that's okay. So, but what's the story? So we have to make sure the story is known. So what is the story? What happened? And how did it hurt you? I'd like to invite you now, as you look at that person, to imagine yourself telling them exactly what happened. And you can look them in the eye and you can tell them what it was like from your point of view and you can tell them however you want to tell them. But tell them the whole story. I just want to invite you to tell that person the story of what happened from your point of view and how it hurt you, what they took from you or how it made you feel. You can tell them the whole thing And you can tell them however you want to tell them. I just want to give you the permission and encourage you to speak out the truth within your heart of what happened. How did it affect you? And maybe how it continually hurts your heart. You can say that. many times when we are wounded, like we talked about, there's certain lies that we believe about ourselves. So maybe for you, the lies that I'm stupid or that I'm not strong enough or I don't have what it takes or I'm not desirable or I'll never figure this out or I'm powerless, I can't do anything about this, I'm, I'm helpless here. So Holy Spirit, I just ask for each one of us that you would bring to mind if there's any lies that we believe about ourselves because of this situation, because of this pain. What is that story that keeps playing in your mind as you hear it? And through the power of your baptism, 
You have the power to renounce things and the power to proclaim things. So I just want to invite you in the silence of your own heart to say this, in the name of Jesus Christ, I renounce the lie that. So in the name of Jesus Christ, I renounce the lie that I'm powerless. In the name of Jesus Christ, I renounce the lie that I'm bound in shame. In the name of Jesus Christ, I renounce the lie that the situation will never change, that he will never change, she will never change. In the name of Jesus Christ, I renounce the lie that I'm worthless or that I'm not seen. Whatever that is for you, and sometimes there's many. So what we're going to do is we're clearing out your heart for an encounter. I just ask you, Holy Spirit, right now that you would speak the truth of who we are in this situation. Speak the truth of who we are, that we are loved, that we are seen, that we matter, that we are valuable, that we can do all things in Christ who strengthens us. So what is the truth that you want to speak to each one of us right now about this, about who we are in this situation? And we are going to announce that truth. So once again, in the silence of your heart, just invite you to say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I announce the truth that I am loved, that I am never forgotten, that I am not alone. That, Lord, you are the master of all things. That nothing is without hope. That you love me. In the name of Jesus Christ, I announce this truth. And if you're willing, my dear friends, I just want to invite you to bring that person with you to the foot of the cross where Jesus Christ is on Calvary. And I want to invite you to place that person somewhere. And you can place them right next to you, into the cross, next to the cross. You can place them far away in the field, You can put that person wherever you want to put them. But if you're willing, I just want to invite you to bring that person that's hurt you to the foot of the cross. And I would like to invite you to look at the face of Jesus Christ together. And on the cross, his face is one of kindness and mercy. And he has seen and continues to see every ounce of the sorrow in your heart he knows it and as he's pouring out his heart for you he's going to speak mercy and forgiveness to you and if you're willing I'd like to invite you to ask Jesus to forgive that person. And Lord Jesus, we just choose this grace that you've so freely given us from the cross in the areas of our own pain, in the areas where we struggle, in the areas that we still feel angry, that we don't know how to resolve this problem. We just ask you, Lord Jesus, to forgive that person. They know not what they do. Please forgive them. Please help me to forgive them.
And if you're willing, my dear friends, and only if you're willing, and if you can't do this, that's okay. But if you're willing, I just want to invite you to turn to that person that's there with you and to look them in the eye and to choose to forgive them. And this is only a grace that comes from Jesus. And we look at them and we say, I choose to forgive you. I choose to, this day, release my grasp upon you. I choose to no longer seek revenge or to hurt you for the ways that you've hurt me. Even though it's incredibly difficult and it might take a very long time, I'm choosing this day to commend you to Jesus here. And I choose forgiveness. And I ask you, Lord Jesus, that you would please help me do this. I pray that you would heal the heart of this person who is wounding because they are wounded themselves and a person you deeply love. And Lord, I pray that you would heal me in the areas that I'm wounded. And I pray that your grace, your loving grace, that your precious blood would pour upon us both and heal us. Lord Jesus, we know that you who have begun a good work will see it to completion. And we just commend this person to you on this night, Lord, whether this is the first time or that this is the millionth time we've done this. We once again commend this person to you. And we ask for your blessing, especially this Advent season. And we seal this time of forgiveness as we pray. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. What you just did is not just a simple exercise or a meditation. What you do in here and the vows that you make and the promises that you make and what you accept and what you reject has a direct proportion, a direct affect in the spiritual realm. That I guarantee you tonight what happened in your heart was actually a real forgiveness taking place and a real healing taking place. And I do this all the time. <laughs> with people that I struggle with, the people that I have a hard time forgiving. And because, like we talked about, love is a, cho- love is a choice. Love is an, a will to will the good of the other. So is forgiveness, my dear friends. And it's only you. God will never force, like we talked about last night, God will never force the door of your heart open. It is only you and I that can begin this work where even if we can't, you know, for some of us, we can't even get past the first step. And you know what, that's okay, but could we, could we just be willing to? <laughs> Could we just be willing? And see, that's all God is asking. Could we just be willing? And it's a softening of our heart just a little bit that allows the full heart to come alive. People often ask me, they say, you know, what's, what can I do for Lent? Like, what can I do for Advent? Like, what's something that I could take on or give up for Advent or Lent? You know, what could I do? One of the most powerful things you can do for Lent or Advent 
is pray every single day for the person who's hurt you the most. And then see what happens to you on Easter Sunday. See what happens to you on Christmas Day. See what happens to your own heart. Because there's never a person, ourselves included, who is without hope. And this is the revelation of who we are. Um, Last thing. um, I love this particular painting, and perhaps at home you have Christmas cards um, with this image but this I'm obviously more of a modern painter, made modern painting. I don't know the artist of this particular um, work, but the title of the painting is called Kissing the Face of God. And it is here, like we talked about last night, this is here where Mary gathers us into her heart. It's here where she desires to bring us very, very close. And there's something about a mother that only a mother can do. <laughs> um, Dr. Alice von Hildebrand says, you know, we talk about a woman being receptive, and we talk about Advent really being a season of Mary where she gives birth to Jesus. You know, she said, we talk about a woman being receptive, and she said, it's very beautiful what to be a woman means. You know, when a husband and a wife come together in the marital act, she says the woman receives a microscopic seed, and she gives back an immortal soul, right? Her whole receptivity of who she is as a woman and, you know, how she loves. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times at our daycare, I told you I work at a daycare for many years, how many times at our daycare where the kids would have an epic, massive meltdown. And I love those children, but I'm not their mom. And sometimes the only thing I could do would be to call mom. <laughs> I'd say, Mom, I don't know what's happening, but your son is sick, and he just will not stop crying, and I can't get him to stop crying. He's having a complete and total meltdown. And she knows that, you know, her older son was sick the week before, and she probably realizes that her little boy is sick. And she says, she's that mom. She, you know, a lot, of our mom, a lot of the kids that came to our daycare were from single parents, single moms. Mom's working two jobs. And she hears me on the phone saying her baby's sick, and she says, I'll be right there. And 20 minutes later, she knocks on that daycare door, and she walks into our daycare, and she's looking for her baby, and she's a mom on a mission, right? And she's looking at all the kids looking for her child, and sometimes her little boy would see her before she would spot him, and he would just take off across the floor, running, sobbing. And he's like little Legos in his hands, and he's shaking, you know, and he's running. He's like calling out to his mom, and she sees him, and she scoops down, and she picks him up, and she puts him right on her heart, and she stands there in front of all those kids, and she rocks him back and forth, and she's like, it's okay, baby, mom is here. You're safe, and it's okay. It's, o- it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. And many times, you know, she's the only person who can get him to do what nobody else can do. She gets him to stop crying. And she'll set him down. And she would go into our closet, and she'd get his little backpack and his little jacket, and she'd take him by the hand. She'd say, okay, we're going to go to the store, okay? He's like, okay, mommy, okay. And she walks out the door, and she says, thank you, sister. I'll see you tomorrow. That is the heart of who a mother is. And Bishop Fulton Sheen said, you know, if you could imagine a mother with the best traits, you'd want her to be kind and generous and strong and tender and nurturing and beautiful and loving. And he said, here she is. Here she is. And she desires to help us on this path of forgiveness because you know what? She too stood at the foot of the cross. And she saw the whole thing. And her heart was broken open for her son and for the church and for you and me as well. And that is her desire is to bring us home to her son. Tomorrow, what we're going to go into is we're going to go into hope and restoration and transfiguration and glory and all beautiful things. But tonight, I once again just want to invite you um, as you leave here this evening and as you rest, and as many for many of us, this area of forgiveness is a fresh area, I just want to allow you to once again just to let the Holy Spirit minister to you. 
and just to see kind of tomorrow as you go through the day what kind of comes to your heart or what it kind of comes to your mind and what are some of the deep desires that arise out of your heart. Because like we talked about last night, you know what, I don't know what Christmas was like that last year at your family, but this year does not have to be another year where half the family doesn't talk to the other half, right? And sometimes, like we said, the only difference is you. And so this reality of who we are, do we want to be well? The reality of who we are is allowing Christ to come and minister to our what things and to set us free. Okay. So let's pray, shall we? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we come before you tonight just in gratitude. And I just very tenderly offer to you all the hearts of your sons and daughters this evening. Lord, you know every single person here. You know their story. And you minister to them so deeply. I thank you for their willingness to encounter you. I thank you for their willingness to begin this journey or to walk along it. And I pray, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would draw very, very close to each one of us tonight and tomorrow. I pray that you would speak of deep healing, of deep forgiveness, of deep restoration. And I pray that we would have a tangible experience of your love and kindness, of your hope and freedom. And I ask you, Mother Mary, you whose heart is a refuge, that at this very moment you would gather each one of us into your arms and kiss us. That we would know your kindness, your home, your heart, your beauty, and your joy. And we once again entrust ourselves tonight to you, Mother, as we pray, Hail Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Queen of Peace, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It was an honor to have you here this evening. Thank you so much. I'll see you tomorrow. God bless you. Brad has an announcement for us.